Good morning. Can you hear me? Go ahead and take your Bibles as we continue our worship of the Lord to Genesis 44 to 45. I should say 44 through 45. This morning, and there may, I think there's one more note sheet on my left, your right, on the counter. This morning, we're going to look at both chapters, and I'm going to read both chapters. And while this morning I can't say everything that can be said on these two chapters, I think it would be advantageous to preach both of them at the same time. That is, looking at both chapters. Now, we're going to read these chapters, I am, and it's a little bit long. The question is, why do we do this? Why Why would I read so many verses? Is it boring? And Perhaps, to some. But there's many reasons. One reason is because 1 Timothy 4.13 says to be addicted to reading the text. That's what 1 Timothy 4.13 says, or be absorbed in reading the text. Uh, second, this is the story. I'm not going to tell you a story. God is telling you a story. And it's really these two chapters, 44 to 45. Now, as I read it, even young people, even children, all of us, I want you to look for three things. First, the first section, verses 1 through 17, Judah says something. What does he say? Finally, what does he say? And then second, in the second section, which is verses 18 to the end of chapter 44, basically, what does Judah do? He's going to do something. What does he do? And then the last section will be all of chapter 45. And what is Joseph saying to the brothers? What, what, what is he saying to them? Just think about those things as I read. Starting with verse 1, chapter 44. Then he commanded his house steward, this is Joseph, saying, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city, and were not far off, when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and from which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, The money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? 
with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. We also will be my Lord's slaves. Then he said, now let it be also according to your words. He with whom it was found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have your father or brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about, when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my, ho- that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn in pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became searchy for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Then, Chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph cannot control himself, 
before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Remember, it had been at least 22 years since they had seen him, and they thought him dead, most likely. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over the land, over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you would have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this. Take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so and Joseph Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. So they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, 
the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you teach us, Lord, that your spirit would place your word in our hearts and that we might become more like Jesus. We trust you and we trust your word. May it do its work within us. We give you glory for your sake. Amen. This morning, I tried to get some help for my introduction. I tried to get my son and daughter to come up here and sing with me, but they refused to do it. I don't know why. Perhaps I could have Lisa join me, but one time she and I did sing in public, and it didn't go very well for me. It went very well for her. That was in Krasnoyarsk, Russia, at a big church. One day I'm going to sing. I'm actually going to sing for the introduction, but I won't do it. I have to resist not singing this. But there is a musical whose line, uh, the first stanza goes like this. And you'll know what it is as soon as I read the first line. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow... I want to sing it really bad. <laughs> There'll be sun. I was trying to sing it at home, but that also didn't go well. The sun will come out tomorrow. Maybe not. Maybe not. Not just because of their weather in the Pacific Northwest, but it's possible that tomorrow the sun may not come up. Tomorrow may be a terrible day. It could be the end of the world tomorrow. Literally, it could be the end of the world. Who knows what's going to happen next? The monkey pox is going to get you. There's always going to be something next. The sun may not come out tomorrow. It's true. You have only what? You only have today. Second Corinthians chapter 6 says, today, today is the day of salvation. You have today. That's it. I can't promise you that tomorrow will be here. The Lord might come back tomorrow, and that would be a wonderful thing. That, that would be the best thing in the universe if Christ came back tomorrow. If you don't know Jesus, repent and trust Jesus right now this morning, because Christ might come back tomorrow. But why would I share this as an introduction? What does this have to do with Joseph and Judah and the ten brothers and the famine and Jacob. Well, we've been looking at this unit from chapter, from chapters 42 to 45, and we've been calling it restoration, and we've seen three sermons and 12 different points on humbling yourself and getting right with God for fruitfulness and fullness. How many sermons in this section are there going to be? Could be 20 points. And there could be 10 sermons on getting right with God and humbling yourself. I believe that what this section is doing, 44 and 45, is basically summarizing this section on being restored to God and calling for action now. 
right now. God right now wants you to get right with him. If you don't know him, if you don't know Jesus, or if you know Jesus and you're not following Christ the way that you should, right now God is telling you and me through this passage, today is the day to get right with God. Right now. Right now. Do it today. One, because God tells you to. Two, because he's worthy of your love and dedication. But three, tomorrow actually isn't promised to you. It's not. Today is a day to humble yourself before God and get right with him. So that you can have a fruitful and full life for Christ. And I think that the main scenes of this unit that we just read, they summarize all the other 12 points, if you remember, we looked at we looked at about being restored to God. So we're just going to look at three points, and I, I mentioned those to you briefly at the very beginning before we read the passage. Main point this morning is today, get right with Jesus Christ. And I think there's a sense in which all of us need to get right with God through Jesus Christ. Number one, first, humbly get right with God by dealing with your sin. Humbly get right with God by dealing with your sin. If you want to have a fruitful life and a full life being useful to God and for his kingdom, then deal with your sin. You can never truly be close to Christ and be truly useful to him, having a life overflowing with fullness and fruitfulness and joy and peace and patience unless you deal with your sin. And this is the point, I think, of chapter 44, verses 1 to 17. Why do I say that? Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially narratives, not always, but oftentimes... One of the techniques of Hebrew narrative is the main point that's being emphasized of a certain scene will be emphasized at the very end. I mean, we do it today in movies, right? You, you don't watch a movie and then 15 minutes before the conclusion, get up and walk away and go, oh, that was great. Okay, I'm done. You, you don't read a book, but then skip the last five chapters, I hope. Why? Because it's the very end that has the climatic point. And it's very similar with Hebrew narrative. So when you look at this Hebrew narrative, the first scene is verses 1 through 17, because they leave Joseph. And at the very end, look at verse 17. What does Judah say? We can start at verse 16, rather. And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are our Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. This, I think, is the the point of the section here, the climatic conclusion of this unit is where you have Judah saying, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Have you ever thought that way 
about your life and your sins, but you've tried to hide it. You've done all you could to hide your sin. And yet, God knows, and he makes it public. That's happened to me. And I imagine it's happened to all of us in one way or another. God knows, and sooner or later, this happens. Now, what's interesting in this section is actually, is Judah guilty of the accusation? Is Judah and their brothers guilty of stealing the silver cup? No. They're not. Then what is Judah saying? Is Judah lying? You know, there are some times when I think it can happen in relationships and families and marriages or siblings in the church. Somebody might say, Tom, I can't believe you, you did this and you said this. You're terrible. That's wrong. You need to repent. Yes, you're right. I repent. But I don't really mean it, and I don't really think I sinned, but I say it in order to what? I don't want to hear this person keep talking. I just want to leave, you know, quiet down. I want there to peace, 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 peace. So then I'll just say, oh, yes, yes, I, I sinned. Please forgive me. Okay, boom. Now can we just go about with our normal lives? Does that happen at times? I, I, I think so. I think we can try to smooth things over. And so we have to be careful about saying, yes, I've sinned when I didn't sin, right? Otherwise, I'm not playing the truth. I'm lying. And then I have sinned. <laughs> what am I saying? Is here in this passage, when Judah says here in verse 16, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. What iniquity is he talking about? I think Judah is ultimately saying, I'm a sinner. And my brothers and I, we've lived a life of sin. Because if you go back, all the way back earlier in chapter 43, 42, with all that happened, like for example, uh, 42 verse 21, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. So even earlier... The brothers were, were guilty, were guilty. And now that actually they're innocent of this specific deed, Judah is saying the fact of the matter is actually we're terrible. We're guilty of a lot of sin. Maybe not that exact sin that you're talking about, but God, through his divine providence and through this whole ordeal with Pharaoh and, and Joseph and Benjamin and our father Jacob, Judah is saying, I confess, I admit... I have iniquity. And iniquity is the idea of perversion, not just in a sexual sense, but my whole life, my thoughts, my desires, and every area are, are, are bented and twisted out of shape. I have been wrong. That's what Judah is saying. And it's, I think, the emphatic point of the text, because earlier... With the episode of Tamar, Judah said at the end of that section, she is more righteous than me. And then with his father, Jacob, in the previous section, Judah says, not like Reuben, I promise to go back and get Benjamin. If I don't, if I fail, you can kill my sons. That's what Reuben said. That's horrible. Instead, Judah said, I'll go back and I'll, I'll be sure. I'll take Benjamin with me. And if I don't bring him back, my, my own life is forfeit. Now he says, when his 
brothers are basically uh, tricked, right? That he says, I'm guilty. I'm the one that's bad. I'm the one that's wrong. We see this growth in Judah. And here I think he's admitting, and I think the text is emphasizing that Judah is saying, and in light of who I am and what I've done, I am guilty of all kinds of sin. I think Judah is saying, we're not innocent and I'm not innocent. That's the truth of the matter. Is there anybody here, even this morning in this room, can anybody in this room say, I am completely innocent of sin? I can't. Nobody can. All of us are guilty of sin. Of heinous sin against God. Now, second, and if you have notes, they're a little bit wrong. It said further, this is the point, I think, of chapters 42 to 45. Not just 44, but all this whole section, really, that we've been going through, all these sermons sermons on, on restoration, I, I think it's the idea that... Because you can see it with the brothers, how the, their conscience is being tormented, and you have felt it yourself when you don't deal with your sin, and it's just there... And we said it's like that nagging sore tooth in the back here. Maybe it doesn't hurt all the time, but there are certain things that sets off that infected tooth. And then it really hurts. And there are certain things in life that can set off your guilty conscience. And I think here, Judah is coming to the place where he's saying, I am really guilty. That is... Those who want fullness and fruitfulness of a life with God, they're going to deal with their sin. This is a biblical principle. Look at Proverbs. Proverbs 28.13. And I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find Compassion. You want to have compassion and a blessed life? Then deal with your sin. This is what Judah is doing, finally. And this is true in the New Testament and it's true with our relationship to God. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's First John 1, 9. But even James, in relation to one another, we also confess our sins. James five sixteen says, therefore confess your sins to one another. If we want to have a fruitful relationship with God, then we will deal with our sins. The power in the Christian life is not to be this extraordinary person and have all kinds of extraordinary events in your life. The power in the Christian life is that you confess your sin. And so you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. 
This is what Judah is doing finally. So what does this look like, this dealing with your sin? Confession, but it's deeper and broader than that. Both here with Judah, because there is repentance that we see in his life, which we'll see in a moment, where he, he doesn't just confess he's a sinner, he does, and then he does something that is different than how he used to act. But what is involved in confession? We can say several things. It takes humility, right? You have to be humble. To be humble is you're saying that God is great. I am not. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. And so you're humble yourself underneath him. It's thinking less of yourself, less often. But you're not also are not thinking that you are yourself great, but that God is great. There's also this acknowledgement of guilt. You're willing to say, to confess, and Greek is homolegeo, homolegomai. It's the idea of say the same thing. Say the same thing. I'm saying to God, not only am I saying I sinned, but I'm saying that it is a heinous sin against you because you're holy and you're too pure, Lord, to, to look at sin. Further, even in this text, but also Psalm 51, Psalm 32, is not only do I say I'm guilty, Lord, it's heinous sin, but actually my sin deserves ultimately what? Damnation, hell. And even David mentions this in Psalm 51, and he had committed adultery and murdered. He murdered not just Uriah, but even the friends and comrades that were with Uriah, and he was king of Israel and even an explicit type of Jesus Christ. And he did these great sins. And he says, against you, Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is saying, basically, I deserve to be judged by God. Everybody in this room not because that you're worse than me, you're not worse than me, but everybody in this room, because we're not as holy as God, because we've committed sin against God, we all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve damnation, judgment. And so when we confess our sins, we're saying, Lord, what I did was wrong, and what I did actually makes me guilty enough to go to hell. Makes me guilty enough to go to hell. There's nobody here that is more righteous than somebody else, and so because of that righteousness, merits them to go to heaven. Not one of you. Not me. That would only be Jesus, because he was sinless. Further, when you look at this text, there are no, there are no excuses. Genesis 44 to 45. There there are no excuses. Judah isn't. Look, Joseph was a brat. He was bratty. He was arrogant. He had this robe and he owned the best of the father. He was a punk. Judah doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm guilty. How many times have you confessed your sin to somebody else and said, "I, I did this because you 
I, or even to God, God, I, I acted this way to my wife, but it was 11.30 at night, and I was trying to sleep. And I should have comforted her. But it was too late for me. You know, we can have many excuses for why we sin. You look at Psalm 32, Psalm 51, both those Psalms, David is confessing his sin. And he gives absolutely no excuse. None. He says, I'm guilty. I was wrong. It was evil. It was wicked. When we confess our sin, we don't give excuses. There, there may need to be some clarifications, but we don't say, I did this because. We don't say anything that's going to kind of almost let us off the hook. No, we're, we're guilty. We're wrong. And Judas says, God has found us out. The iniquity. We can't justify ourselves. You see that right in the text, verse 16. And how can we justify ourselves? Can you justify yourself? Now, when we do this, why then is it powerful? Because when we do this, we're not running to ourselves. We're not running to our own repentance. We're not running to our own reformation. We take shelter in Christ. In Him there is redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 7. Right. John, 1 John 1 7 as well says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from how many sins? All sin. Past, present, future, all sin. All sin. Every sin I ever did, am doing, or will do is, is cleansed by the death of Jesus. I, I don't shelter in me. I shelter in Christ. This is why you have Psalm 25, 11 that David also wrote. And it says in Psalm 25, 11, almost a, almost a strange way to pray. For your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. To glorify your name, Lord, forgive me. Lord, my sin is so massive. Forgive me that you can glorify yourself. That's basically what David is praying in 2511. And that's what we do when we confess our sins to God and deal with our sins in terms of getting right before him. We go to go to him, say, Lord, what I did, what I did was wrong. It was evil. It wasn't simply that I was overpowered and Satan defeated me. It's that I chose to sin. That's worthy enough to send me to hell. But my hope is in Christ. My hope's not in the church. That's not in any merit. It's not in any activity that I can do. My only hope is in you, Jesus. That you died on the cross for sinners. And so I, I trust you. I cling to you. Lord, forgive me and save me. This is what we do. This is how we deal with our sin. The, the past can't be changed. We've said that many times. I, I wish I could change my past. I've done bad things. And if I could change them, I would. I can't. I've done bad things every year of my life. One day I won't when I see Jesus. But those bad things can be covered and they can be cleansed and I can even be a catalyst for me to become more like Jesus 
when I'm always going to the cross and saying, Lord, I, I sinned, I did this, it was wrong. I, Lord, please forgive me. And I'm always pointing to Jesus and I'm always going to the cross. I'm not simply apologizing or saying I'm sorry, but rather I'm saying, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. And the more I focus on Christ and the more I'm running to him, that will give me power and, and strength and even transformation to start saying no to some of those sins. Right? Even Jesus talked to this way about some of the prostitutes in the Gospels. They love much because they have been what? Forgiven much. Maybe we don't see the power in the Christian life and love to Jesus because we're not going to him as much as we should and saying, Lord, I blew this. Lord, I sinned here, I sinned here, I sinned here. I did this, I did this, I did this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. We're not practicing the end of Psalm 139. Lord, search me and know me. And these ways that I've sinned, Lord, let them be known to me so I can deal with them. And I think this morning, this is what the Lord wants us to do is not simply to be absorbed in our sin, but to see our own sinfulness and then take it to the cross of Christ and see Jesus cover it. Cleanse it, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And then out of that, we love him more. Today is the day to get humbly right with God. And in some way, all of us here need to get right with God. Start dealing with your sin. If you're not, if you are dealing with your sin, may you and I even do it better. Number two, today is a day to humbly get right with God. First, deal with your sin. We can see Judah does it. Normally, I wouldn't say be like Judah. In this instance, be like Judah. Second, there's a second way to get humbly right with God. And that's by actually making the personal sacrifice, actually doing something. Earlier we saw where Judah says, back in chapter 53, I'm sorry, 43, Lord, uh, sorry, Jacob, Father, if I don't bring back Benjamin, my life is forfeit. It's over. But now what we see actually in verses 18 all the way to 34 is he actually does something about it. It wasn't just simply talk. Actually, he has the walk. Talk is cheap. Actually doing the walk is is very costly. And we see that because in verse 33, he says, Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad. A slave to my Lord. He's basically doing what he did to Joseph. Right? He sold Joseph into slavery. Now, out of his own willingness, Judah is saying, I will be a slave for Benjamin and even for my father. He didn't just talk about stepping up and sacrificing. He's actually doing it. Now, there's all kinds of data and talk and language in this whole section. And there was even earlier in chapter 44, even where it's talking about divination. There was a custom in Egypt where if you were part of the elite, if you were one of the rulers of Egypt, you could have a cup and you could have water in there. 
hydromanacy, similar to necromanacy, but with water. And it seems that Joseph is kind of almost playing that role. But it's ironic because Joseph was actually able to receive revelation from God. I'm saying that to say there are many details in these sections and we can't get into all of them. We're trying to focus on the main point. And like previously, the main point here comes at the end. So you have this dialogue that happens from verse 18 all the way through the end of the chapter where basically Judah is saying, I have to step up and step in. I told my father I would do this. Now I'm actually going to do it. And I'm, I'm going to do what I said. I mean, we, we can all talk the talk. <laughs> we can all make promises. To actually do it is hard. And Judah is stepping up and stepping in, and he's actually doing it. And at the very end, like we said with Hebrew narrative, not always, there are many different instruments that Hebrew narrative, different figures and motifs that Hebrew narrative were used to make a point. Here at the end, again, this climactic point of this little movie, this little video podcast, verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain. What word is used? Instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. We'll get back to that word in just a moment. But do note that he's he's putting others first. He's putting Benjamin first. This whole section, he talks about his father, that if he doesn't bring back Benjamin, his father's going to die. He's putting, so Judah's putting his brothers first. He's putting Benjamin first. He's also doing this to save Benjamin. So his father, Benjamin, and his brothers. That doesn't sound like Judah from 22 years ago. (laughs) Something's happened. He's been transformed. He's saved. He knows God now. And actually, he's acting like the Messiah. He's stepping in. And even the word in the text, what word in the text is used? Instead. That's an atonement word. Look back at verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. That's the substitution word. And that's even before the book of Leviticus. Judah is saying, I will stand in the place of Benjamin. Instead of Benjamin having to stay here and be a slave, I will stay here and be a slave to save Benjamin and to save my father, Instead of Benjamin, I I will substitute for him. I will make the sacrifice for him. Now, because Judah is head of the tribe, of course, of Judah, but that's the Messianic tribe. That's the tribe that Jesus came from. David and Jesus. So I do think it's a, at least we could say this, it's a explicit foreshadowing of what the, the ruler, the Messiah, of what the king would do. And that is Jesus. Does it mean that Judah understood this? I'm not saying that. But providentially what Judah was doing is prefiguring what Christ would do. Because Benjamin wasn't guilty. Of stealing silver. However, 
it does break down because Judah was guilty of many things. <laughs> but Jesus was guilty of nothing. But still this act of substitution is there. Now for you and I then, what is it that we should do? How do we respond to this? Well, I think it's obvious, and I said it earlier at the beginning of this second point. It's easy in many ways to talk about loving people. Loving God, loving people, singing great hymns. It's great to see you guys. Love you. Love your brother. Love your sister. Praying for you. We can do a lot of that. But if we were in a similar situation where I had to say, I might go into slavery for the rest of my life. But I'll do it for you because I love you. That would be really difficult. Would that be easy to do? Talk is cheap. It is. Not saying that your words are worthless, right? James 3. But if it's not backed up by action, listen to 1 John, right? We're familiar with this. 1 John chapter 3. The Bible talks about this. We know love by this, chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his own life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's pretty powerful what Judah does. Judah hated his brother. Why did he hate Joseph? Because Father Jacob loved Rachel's son, more than any of the other sons. And he even says, he even talks about his father's love for Joseph. He says that to Joseph, right? He hated Joseph for that reason. But now, what is, and sold him into slavery. But now, Judah is saying, this, this Benjamin, that father also loves basically more than all the other brothers, than all of his other sons, he loves Benjamin the most now. For father and for Benjamin, I will sacrifice myself. That's powerful. He's stepping in and he's making the sacrifice and he's being like Jesus. But it, it does remind me of this New Testament principle. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Most sin, realistically we could say perhaps all sin, is produced from selfishness, being selfish. You know, a pride, lack of faith, Selfishness. And so being willing to place yourself last and to make not just a small sacrifice, but actually laying down your life for another. That's Christianity. And what did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, what should you do? 
Go to church. What? Read to the Bible in a year. If Maybe. But he said specifically, if you want to follow me, what do you do? You pick up the cross, which is an instrument of execution and death. You, you, you die to yourself. It's not about me. It's about God. And it's about others. I will die to myself. And Judah is, is doing this. Old Testament Judah was transformed. Have you been transformed? And I'm not talking about your, your children. Stop talking about, thinking about your children. Oh, my children. Children, stop thinking about your parents. Spouses, stop thinking about your spouse. Siblings, stop thinking about, stop thinking about each other. Stop thinking about your boss. You, have you been transformed so that you can say and you can do, I will lay down my life. Whatever that might entail. And we're not perfect, and so that's why we have the cross, and that's why we have forgiveness. Doing things even when you don't want to do, but they're loving things for others. Laying down your life, your time, your your energy, your preferences, laying those aside for others. That's what God is calling us to do. And then third, with the remaining time, third. And again, remember, probably reading the text took ten minutes, and so that's not counted as sermon time. Okay? Third point of humbly getting right with God. Today, not tomorrow. So first we said to humbly get right with God today, deal with your sin. Second, there has to be this decision in our minds Christianity, in a large part, in terms of my commitment, is I, I die to self. Now, we're not saved by a sacrifice I make. We're saved by the sacrifice that Christ makes. But my response to that is, Lord, it's not about me. It's about Christ, and it's about others. I die to myself daily. There was a group known as the Moravians. Have you ever heard of the Moravians? And I'm not saying God calls each one of you to do this though he might be. Some Moravians decided to be missionaries, and they didn't go to southern France, to the Mediterranean. They didn't go to the U.S. They went to leper colonies and said, we will be missionaries to the leper colonies. And once they went in, they never left. They were there the rest of their lives. I'm not saying God calls each Christian to make that kind of commitment. But we are called by God to make a commitment to where we die to ourself. That's Christianity. Not produced by our resolve and commitment, but produced by the love of God that is within us through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, humbly get right with God by trusting that the Lord has a good plan through the evil people in your life. Trust the Lord has a good plan for you, even through the evil actions that evil people have done to you. God has a plan for it. Satan's not in charge. Those evil people are not in charge. God's in charge. Any evil that's been done to you, it's not that, oops, God wasn't paying attention. That's not the truth. That's fake news. 
God is on his throne and God is in control. So first, a, a question. At least my question is it seems to me since what, Genesis 37, 36, and in one sense, every sermon is about the providence of God. Genesis 50, 20. What man intended for evil, God has meant for good. But why is this? There are so many times in my life when it seems that God is just hammering away with his providence. And I think it's because we, we need to hear it. The nation Israel needed to hear it. We need to hear, especially this day and age. That's why I mentioned the monkey pox. It's because there was so much confusion and disaster and true type of fear-mongering. But actually, people should be afraid because <laughs> Jesus is returning and they need to get right with God. And in one sense, and I'll come back to this, in one sense, the world is spinning out of control. It's crazy. But God is sovereign. He's Lord. And I think that's why... God's providence keeps coming back up in scriptures and through sermons because whether it's the macroverse or the microverse, the visible and the invisible, there is a Lord and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. God is in control. Now, second, the text specifically teaches several things. First, Just because we say God is sovereign, God's in control of everything, doesn't automatically neutralize all the emotion, does it? Right? I've had my father and my mother are dead. I have two older brothers that are dead. I've had many friends that, that have died. Some are with the Lord, some are in hell. And knowing that God is sovereign over that it brings a lot of help, but it doesn't automatically neutralize the emotions we have, right? It doesn't. And we can see this here in this text. Joseph, the one that's teaching about the providence of God, the one that orchestrated this testing for all their brothers, you can see in 45 verse 1, he cries. Verse 2, he weeps, and he weeps loudly. If I may have been there, I, I might have said, Joseph, grow up. God is sovereign. Stop crying like a baby. And I, I should be rebuked if I did that. There's intense emotion because God is sovereign, but because he hadn't seen his brothers in so long, and all that they did to him and all that, it's all coming to fruition of restoration. And there can be deep emotion involved, and that emotion is not necessarily wrong. It shouldn't control us. It needs to be contoured by that good providence of God. But Ecclesiastes, right, chapter 3, there is a time to what? To weep. And even Ecclesiastes 3 is talking about when it says there is a time for this, a time for this. It's talking about the sovereign providence of God that he brings into our life. Verse 5, Joseph says, though, as I said, don't be controlled by emotions. He says, don't be grieved or angry with who? Yourselves. You rascals. You cockroaches. You, you, you guys are terrible. I love you. I forgive you. God is sovereign. Don't be overcome by all the evil that you've done. God is in control. There's even God's providences can be un unbelievable. You can see in verse 3, they were dismayed. They 
had no idea what was going on. He says, I am Joseph. And even if you remember Jacob at the end of this passage, it says that he didn't believe them. Verse 26, but he was stunned for he did not believe them. Have you ever had that in your life where God in his providence does something and you're like, that can't be true. This isn't happening. <laughs> I can, I've shared this with you before. One time Lisa and I, we were, long story, but we were in Russia. We stranded, didn't know how to get back to the apartment. We were with a team. We didn't speak Russian, really. We prayed, Lord, we need to get home. Help us, Lord, to, to get us back to our flat. We don't speak Russian. We, we don't know what to do. We finished the prayer, and over on the other side of the bridge was a member of Grace Community Church that spoke fluent Russian that came right up to us. We didn't know that he... I, I didn't know he was there. I was shocked. Like, no way, God, God actually answered a prayer. Like, instantly. But sometimes in the providence of God, we can be like, what? And all of this is part of this, okay, that the Lord is in control. He is in control over all things. But there is also divine intentionality. Note, and this is what I mentioned before I read the text. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 45, He doesn't necessarily gloss over the sin. He, he's not pounding them. You cockroaches, you're, you're terrible, disgusting sinners. He's not pounding them, but he doesn't just ignore what they did. Look at verse 5. Don't be grieved or, or too angry because you sold me here. So he doesn't ignore what they did, but he does focus on what God did. Verse 5. For God sent me before you. Verse 7. God sent me before you. Verse 8. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9. God has made me Lord. And throughout this whole passage, the whole story that Joseph shares is you had these evil designs, but God, through it all, had his grand purpose in mind. God is Lord, and you guys aren't Lord. God is Lord. Pharaoh's not Lord. The brothers aren't Lord. Biden's not Lord. Bush is not Lord. Trump is not Lord. Putin is not Lord. Who's not Lord? The CDC's not Lord. MacArthur, Piper, Genghis Khan, whoever it is. There, there are many small lords, but there's only one cosmic sovereign Lord over the whole universe that controls everything, and that's Yahweh. That's the God of the Bible over all things. That's what Joseph is saying. Even over the free actions of evil people. So even if somebody does, and I'm sure they have something evil to you, yes, that was wrong. Yes, that was despicable. But over that is the sovereign plan and purpose of God. That's what the Bible teaches. This is why Thomas Watson said, God is not involved in the sin of the action, but he is involved in the action of the sin. God is, this is Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor and theologian. God is not involved in the sin of the action, but he's involved in the action of the sin. Perhaps this illustration will work. And I've mentioned the killer mockingbird, Lord of the Rings, but we can take another illustration, the sound of music. We can use that musical, the sound of music, which involves the von Tromps, as I say it, and the Nazis. Now, the Nazis are terrible, and they're trying to get Mr. Von Trapp and to 
uh, they want to capture him because they want him to be part of the Nazi army. And the von Trapps have to leave and flee and make their way out of Austria into Switzerland. Now, when there is evil that's going on to the von Trapps, Trapps, they, they don't stop and say, and look up at the author of the play, the musical, and say, stop writing it this way. I don't want to, I want to do this instead. Stop writing it. Come on. I'm not free. I'm, I'm a free character. Does that happen? No. Because they are really free. They make their own, in the story, they're making their own choices. Now, it's not the best illustration. There are some holes in the illustrations, but in a very similar way, God is able to write a whole story of your life and even have evil people in your life doing evil things, and they do it out of their own free will, and you do your things out of your own free will, and it's part of God's story, but he does it in such a way where he's not responsible or liable for the evil. Do we understand all there is to understand about all the different ways that works out and works together? No. <laughs> God's thoughts are higher than, than our thoughts, right? These brothers were guilty, and they conspired against Joseph, but the whole time it fit into God's providential plan. Let me say it this way. There's nothing that anybody has ever done to you that's been evil where somehow God just was off his throne. Not only that, but it's been part of his story for your life. Do I understand that? Not not fully. God's able to have a story about your life, a true story that involves evil, and yet he's not responsible for it, but the, those evil characters did it out of their free will. They're responsible for it. But yet God has an ending for it, and the ending of your life, believer, believer, those of you that are in Christ, the ending of your story is going to be 10,000 times better than the Von Tromps, 10 billion times better than Joseph, right? Joseph was Lord of, of what? All of Egypt. <laughs> That's puny. That's puny. He ruled under Pharaoh. Puny Pharaoh. Believers, the Bible says that if you're in Christ, that you'll sit on Christ's throne and you'll reign with Christ. Which is better? That's not a low, low position, ruling with Pharaoh. That's here today, gone tomorrow. Reigning with Christ is what? Forever. And is it over Egypt? It's over the whole universe. Every believer, that is your destiny. That's what will happen. What God has started, the work in you, he will perfect it on that day. This is what Scripture teaches. Therefore, we need to live by God's grace like God is in control. We fear God. We don't fear the world. We trust him. We take godly, biblical risks for him. We humble ourselves. Make your plans, as we've said, with a pencil. And then live for him. Trust him. Get right with God by not living under fear of tomorrow, but by living under God is sovereign. He's in absolute, total control over all things. 
Brothers and sisters, living like the Lord is in control is not being careless, but it's living a careful life to be like Jesus Christ. Living like God is sovereign is not being careless, so you just jump off of a mountaintop with no parachute, but rather... It's seeking to be careful to be like Jesus Christ. That is your responsibility. God has your life and the whole universe and the whole world and all those things worked out from eternity past. Your responsibility, my responsibility is to be like who? To be like Jesus. So as we end this sermon, the song that we started with, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be a sun. Maybe. We don't have that promise to us. What we do have promise to us is our next breath. Will you seize today and get right with God through Jesus Christ? That's God's will for you today. Humble yourself by dealing with your sin. After you do that, seek to be like Jesus by making sacrifices for others to the glory of God. And then thirdly, life is crazy. The world seems to be getting crazier. God has a plan. Jesus wins. You're going to reign with him forever. So get to know God, get to know Jesus, and then keep pressing forward for him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. Help us, Lord, to always be getting right with you. Help us to only be daily repenting, trusting you for all things, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for for this wonderful, true story, Lord. In this way, may we become more like Judah. We praise you and we give you thanks. We give you the glory. Amen.